Do you think that part of the reason why people are young people aren't necessarily going into the trades is because they feel a kind of a shame? They simply are not getting exposed. There's a lot of kids when you get them exposed to maker spaces, they'd love it. About five or six years ago, I went down to Makerspace. We had uh, that uh, one of the universities was putting on. You know what the biggest hit was? Mm. Cutting up cardboard boxes with hacksaw blades and making stuff out of it. Welcome to The Neutral Ground. Our greatest strength as a species lies in our ability to cooperate in order to overcome major challenges. But are we really maximizing the various skills and abilities of everyone? My guest doesn't think so, and I agree with her. Dr. Temple Grandin certainly needs no introduction, but I will do my best to provide an adequate one for someone whose work has very much changed the way we think about thinking. She's a well-known writer and speaker on autism and animal behavior, and today we're fortunate to have the opportunity to speak with her about her latest book, Visual Thinking. The Hidden Gifts of People Who Think in Pictures, Patterns, and Abstractions. Currently, Dr. Grandin is a professor of animal science at Colorado State University, encouraging her students to not merely study the world on a page, but to go out and build it, a message that I wholeheartedly agree with. In this episode, we discuss how visual thinkers differ from verbal thinkers, how we need to encourage people to get back into the trades, And we talk about writing, which was a lot of fun. And she even gives us her opinion on chat GPT and artificial intelligence. If you want to support our movement to bring civility back to discourse, hit the subscribe slash follow button, leave a kind comment for me and my guest, and consider sharing the show with a friend. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Temple Grandin. Dr. Grandin, welcome to The Neutral Ground. It's now, great to be here. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's all mine. You open up your book, actually, Visual Thinking, with Descartes' famous words, I think, therefore I am. And you talk about how thinking and language have been intimately connected, really, for quite a long time. But today, we're now starting to really understand that there are other ways of thinking that are just as important for us as a species. So let's jump in here. What are visual thinkers, and how does their thinking differ from verbal thinkers? Well, in my book, Visual Thinking, um, I actually discuss three ways of thinking. There's the object visualizer like me, who thinks in photorealistic pictures. We tend to be good at working with animals, photography, mechanical things, and art. This may seem strange, but art and mechanics actually go together. Then you have the visual, spatial, mathematical pattern thinker. They think patterns, music, and math. Then you've got word thinkers. And a lot of people are mixtures of the different kinds of thinking. But I was a severely autistic kid. And uh, when you have a label, you tend to be one of the more extremes, maybe an extreme object visualizer or an extreme mathematical genius. Um, They're kind of opposite types of visual thinking. How did having that, that label like say early on, how did that that label sort of dictate a little bit, if you will, how you thought or did it do that? No, it didn't. I just assumed everybody thought in pictures. And the way I finally figured out that most people do not think in pictures is I, I started talking to people about how they think. And what I learned was, and this is when I was in my late 30s, 
Um, you've asked people about their home or their dog. They're so familiar with that, they'll see it. But then I start to ask people about maybe factories or church steeples, something they don't own. And the object visualizer will start naming the churches off. They come up like a set of PowerPoint slides. They're specific. But then one day I talked to a speech therapist and I said, think about church steeples. And all she got was this vague two lines. That was my first inkling that maybe not everybody thought in pictures. That was kind of mind blowing for me. And sticking with this idea of, of mind blowing kind of discoveries, you, you talk about in the book that the second kind of moment that really opened up your own eyes was this idea of actually, wait a second, visual thinking is even on a continuum itself. What did this discovery of, of a continuum of visual thinking, how did that change your understanding of visual thinking even more? Well, I, I then started to figure out uh, on my own the pattern thinker. And I got that idea originally from a book called Exiting Nirvana about a very uh, an autistic lady. And she kind of thought in patterns. But then the thing that really turned me on is one night at three o'clock in the morning, I was surfing online. And in the reference list, of a paper on perception, a rather boring paper, I found the work on object visualization. And you have to have that magic keyword that you don't find it. And then I discovered that there was a whole bunch of research on this. And there's the object visualizers like me. And then the opposite is the visual spatial mathematical pattern thinker. And they're actually kind of opposite kinds of visual thinking. You won't find a super object visualizer and a super mathematician in the same person. Now, you can get some people that are mixtures. And then I, I um, got this name, um, Konishikov. I can never pronounce that correctly. And then I started looking up all the papers. And I'm going, wow, this now, you know, so science to show that the kind of three kinds of thinking I sort of figured out on my own just by interviewing lots of people really did exist. And did that, I mean, because that's something that, yeah, you talk about that in the book too, finding this this research. And even toward the end here, you talked about how finding that research kind of gave you, I, I would say, it sounds to me at least like additional confidence. Is that something that that we should be pushing more of to help students of visual thinking? Well, what I, the problem is I could never do algebra. And I don't know if I could graduate from California. But then when I started working on a visual thinking book, I went back through all the projects where I spent a lot of time out in the metal working shops, a lot of time out on big construction projects. And I figured out there's a very interesting division of labor in engineering hmm. where the high school graduates that can't do algebra are out there inventing mechanically complicated equipment and fattening it and selling it around the world. Then the degreed engineer does the more mathematical stuff, boilers, refrigeration, power, and water requirements. And one of the things that made me want to do this book is right before COVID, I went to four places, two pork processing plants, a state-of-the-art chicken processing plant, and the Steve Jobs Theater. And all the equipment in the poultry plants and the chicken plant came from Holland. And we're paying the price for shutting down shop classes 20 years ago, paying the price for shutting down in-house engineering. Beef we still know how to do, but barely. But the pork and the chickens, all that equipment now is important, imported. Italy's also making a lot of food processing equipment. And it goes back to their educational system. And we kind of look at in this country that um, 
the object visualizer, the skilled tradesperson, sort of a lesser kind of intelligence. I can tell you it's not. It is a different kind of intelligence. And you go to Italy and you look at education, Germany and Holland. Uh, in ninth grade, the kid can either go university route or tech route, and they do not stick their nose up at the tech route. And we have a huge shortage right now of high-end skilled trades. Check out the people fixing elevators and escalators. You're going to see a lot of gray hair. They're not getting replaced. Yeah, and you you mentioned this in the book, and actually uh, this idea of testing and and people getting kind of screened out of majors that they could actually do really quite well in, but because of one test, couldn't. And personally, I know with my students, my computer science students even, they'll come to me sometimes and they'll be really upset because they'll say, I'm getting A's and B's in everything, but except this one advanced calc class that I'm really struggling with. And because of that, I'm getting told that I should be, I should, I can't really continue with this. I have to stop and I have to, because I can't do the one math class. And well, I, I can't do algebra and we're screening a lot of good people out of veterinary medicine. Yeah. Because they can't do algebra. There's a little tiny bit of algebra for dosing drugs, but that can be just memorized like formulas. I, I can do that. But I was screening out a lot of people who make super good veterinarians. I've talked to people that are, you know, flunking their third algebra class so they can become a veterinary technician or a veterinary nurse. You don't need uh, those math classes. You need old-fashioned arithmetic up through sixth grade. That you do need. Dosing drugs, you got to do it in your sleep and do it accurately. But that's it when it comes to math. Yeah. And in your book, you talk about the idea that you, you believe it's too much emphasis on testing in general in schools today. Why Why do you think that is? Why is testing kind of the culprit of screening people? I don't know what the kids are learning because in the last five or six years, the writing skills of college students is horrible. And I have talked to a lot of professors about this. And I'm finding that they never wrote book reports where you learn how to summarize. They never had anybody mark up their work and correct their grammar, copy edit their work. And I'm, I'm going to guess right now, half our grad, graduate students, awful writing skills. I don't know what they're learning in school, but I think writing skills are pretty important. Yes. As a matter of fact, it's one of the, I just gave this talk this past week, first week of class. I told my students, I said, you know, one of the top three things that employers are looking for is actually written communication, not just communication, but written communication. And uh, they look at me almost as if I'm lying, but I have to show them on all the sites, all the different studies, the survey saying, no, no, it's written communication. And there's, there are reasons for that. There's, there's a place for being able to organize your thoughts on a page. It's not to say that that equates to you being more or less intelligent. That has nothing to do with it. It has to do with, with asserting a sense of order on chaos. And, and I, um, you know, writing skills helped me be influential in the cattle industry because I would write about how to handle cattle, cattle behavior principles. I also would publish drawings and all the directions for making the equipment. And and that gets it out there. Yeah. Writing was really important for me. Yeah, we both had a shared moment in your book. You talk about having to go back to the basics with your own graduate students in terms of writing. And of course, in, in teaching in my program, in writing and critical inquiry, we have to do the same. Matter of fact, we've had entire faculty meetings dedicated to the idea of just how much do we have to go back a little bit and try to help with the basics. Well, I'm finding that with maybe half the students, I have to do 
copy edit the work. And it takes a lot more time than uh, uh, reading for content. Another thing I have them do, I said, I want you to go home, stand up like you're giving a speech, and I want you to read your paper out loud. And uh, and that also is really helpful. Yes. I have them do that. And I've been able to get the writing from horrible to usable. Yeah, absolutely. That's something that's going to serve them well. Yeah. Now when they've they... got this bot they can now write. Oh, yeah. I just read in the New Nature just this morning <laughs> that uh, they had it write abstracts for scientific papers. And a lot of people had difficulty telling which ones the, the program wrote and which ones the scientists had written. Yeah, I'm I'm looking into that. I'm looking at chat GPT. And uh, there is something about it that is both um, really exciting and, and, and horrifying at the same time. Yeah, that's just the same way I think about it. And I was thinking, what would I do if I was teaching writing? I think I mean, my students better learn how to write by hand because they're going to do writing exams by hand in class. Every bit of technology put away. That's you, how I would do with this chat program. Yeah, you have to bring the writing into the classroom, which for me, thank goodness, I always do that anyway. They write in the classroom, but you have to. In this new age when students can just put in an idea and have you know artificial intelligence just kind of pop out a perfectly fine article. Well, that's right. And it passes the plagiarism uh, program. Yes. I also read that. Yes, that's true. Absolutely. Let me ask you a question about, about something. So with oftentimes students, we have this picture of a student doodling in class. And oftentimes we think, oh, that student's not paying attention. But in reality, Oftentimes I'll have students who use that, again, to sort of stay focused and to keep thinking, actually. And I know of a couple of teachers who find that they take it personally. No, well, I don't. I, I have to admit, I do some doodling. Absolutely. So my, my question to you is, do you, do you think that we do our children, even our young students, a disservice by trying to regulate and own the ways in which they create as an act of thinking? Well, I want, there's certain things that I want students to learn. There's certain technical things in the cattle industry, you know, like nutrition and about, you know, okay, statistics, they got to know something about some of these things. Uh, but I also want students to get out and express themselves really well. And I'm thinking about my students that have horrible writing you know, what their writing would be like to use that program. And, um, you know, one thing I did on working on the book, I don't believe we were in collaboration, like in a visual thinking book, um, was I would write the rough drafts. Visual thinker, very associative, tendency to kind of ramble. And then Betsy Lerner, my highly verbal co-author, would straighten it all out. We were a perfect team together. And we used each other's very different skills, recognizing the differences. That's complementary skills. Yeah. And that's something that I love about, I really appreciate about the work that you're doing too. It's not as if you're trying to, to privilege one or the other. You're trying to say, look, we have common goals and we need to pull upon as many skills as we possibly can to achieve a lot of the we have we have to fix a lot of infrastructure. We have, um, you know, 
problems in science to fix, and we need to pull upon everyone's ability to think. Let's look at let's look at things like reviewing journal articles. We're getting more and more fancy statistics. Oh, we've got some simple little experiment with 20 cattle per treatment. And we've got to do a multivariate analysis and all kinds of complicated stuff when t-tests were just fine. So they got all these complicated statistics. But then I read the method section of the paper, and you didn't tell me what the concentrate feed was that you fed them. You didn't tell me how you housed your animals. And when these are behavior experiments, that can totally change the results. They leave really important things out of the method section. There was millions of dollars worth of cancer research wrecked because two different labs used different devices for stirring cancer cells. Little $300 devices. And they totally changed the results. And so I'm the, I go over all the methods. I rip into the methods. And lots of times it's a very simple thing. I just need a couple of sentences. Um, they assume that in this in their country, I know what their concentrate feed is. I, I don't know. What did you feed them? What, what, what was it? It matters. How did you house them? It matters. Why do you think that that's happening today? Why are we missing because that? Because they don't see it. You see, visual thinkers see problems. Mathematicians calculate. And in the visual thinking book, I've got a chapter on disasters. And let's look at Fukushima. The mathematicians did a great job making it earthquake proof. It shook and it shook and it shook and it shook. Everything was fine. 20 minutes later, the tsunami drowned it. They didn't see the water going in there and drowning the electric emergency cooling pump. Simple watertight doors that would not have happened. Mathematicians calculate risk. Visual thinkers see risk. And I went and checked the historical data on tsunamis, and it was very clear, a, a 10 meter seawall would be breached. How could you do this? Now, when I was younger, I used to call it stupidity. It's not stupidity. They don't see it. It's a different kind of thinking. I was, um, uh, we need all the different things. And with the Boeing Max thing, it started out as a visual thinking mistake. And I'm going, how could you just wire the plane's computer up? There's one very fragile little sensor called an angle of attack sensor. How could you do that? You know what I since found out a week ago? I sat on a plane next to a Boeing engineer. And it turned out there was a mechanic in the shop that warned them. Would have been very easy to fix. And they didn't heed the mechanic's warning. The guy in the shop going, hey, what if a pigeon breaks that thing off? What's the computer going to do? Very, very simple question. It would have been extremely easy to fix in, in the beginning. They, so didn't do, they don't see it. They don't see it. Is that not, though, a, kind of a little bit of a, because I mean, you, you speak about that divide in, in academia today between um, not. And the academia. Yeah. So do we just not, is it that they don't see it exactly? Or is there also a part of them that, that doesn't really value it. Let's just be honest. Well, they, don't, they didn't value the opinion of the guy in the shop. And they just didn't pay any attention to him. And all they would have had to have done is wire the computer to two uh, sensors, have the angle of attack disagree function functioning on the instrument panel of the plane. This is very, very simple. And the other thing you have to ask is, if I break off the sensor, what does the computer 
do. That's a default setting. Default setting should be fly normally, not think you're stalling when you're not stalling. That's very, very simple when you think about it visually. And then I find out that they had a mechanic in the shop that warned them and they did not listen. And then I went and I, I, I did some consulting with a travel website in Seattle and they also told me they had been warned by the people in the shop. Hmm. But I think some of this, if you if you get aware that it's a different kind of thinking. I was just talking to a guy that worked at a nuclear power plant. He was just starting out and he was kind of a visual thinker. And they went out in this room where there's a bunch of pumps and all the engineers were checking all these different gauges. And this kid looks down through the plastic catwalk grating and goes, there's water down in there, in that pit. Hmm. Something's wrong. And yeah, it turned out there was a leaking pump and something was very wrong. Water should not be in that pit. He looked hmm. down, saw the water in the pit. Everybody else was checking the meters. They didn't see the water in the pit. Wow. Is is there a time, do you think, when... Uh when universities and education in general can, because we, we know that young men, for example, are not, they're not going to universities. Like the use of the research is saying that young men are no longer really going. Do you think that this connects also with this idea of because they don't, don't see know, a value? It needs to be, you know, going into skilled trades stuff. And I get asked all the time if I could do something to fix the schools, I'd put all the shop classes back in cooking, sewing, music, theater, all the home ec classes. I put all that stuff back in because they also are situations where students get exposed to things that they that get interested in that become careers. I was exposed to musical instruments. I wasn't any good at playing, but I got exposed to them. Another kid's going to pick up this little flute I couldn't play and play it. Yeah. Yeah. And you, it's, you, you talk about how uh, you talk about the shop classes and enjoying that. But then also you have this this funny little note about you you might think that I didn't enjoy the home ec classes, but I did as well. You enjoyed the home ec. You enjoyed anything where you could use your hands, essentially. I really liked sewing. I hated yeah. it, but I loved sewing class. And when I was in fourth grade, I had a toy sewing machine that actually sewed. I loved it. It was my favorite thing. And I made costumes for the school play with it. That's fantastic. Well, how, well let me... So you, you do a lot of work with animals, obviously. You mentioned it a couple of times. I'm curious about what role did working with animals play in, in better understanding thinking? Well, I actually understood it better after I figured out that a lot of people were verbal thinkers. Hmm. But an animal lives in a sensory-based world. You've got to get away from verbal thinking. And there's a chapter in the visual thinking book on animal consciousness. And I... Some people still don't think animals are conscious. And I think some of that gets back to verbal versus sensory-based thinking. If you think completely in words, maybe you'd have a hard time imagining that a dog is fully conscious. How can it think without language? Yeah. And also look at where the papers come from, the affiliations. Papers coming out of psychology departments, more verbal thinkers questioning animal thinking uh, papers coming out of the computer science world they don't seem to question whether or not animals think do we do we deal too much today in in data and papers and not enough of actually getting down into the machines themselves well i think we need to get out and doing things i'm kind of appalled we've got students growing up today that never made a paper airplane 
They've mm. never used a ruler. That's why I did this little kid's book on calling all minds. And when I did a book signing for this little kid's project book that has things I made in the 50s, 20 to 30% of elementary school children outside of Denver had never made a paper airplane. They're growing up removed from the world of, the, of practical things. And we have to make decisions about stuff like power grid and things like this. Yeah. See, verbal thinkers tend to overgeneralize, very abstract, top down. <clears throat> I tend to think <clears throat> in specific things. What's a specific way I can solve a particular problem? Um, like when they had the power grid fail in Texas, I want to find out exactly what froze in each plant. And then I can rank them as how difficult they would be to fix. Did you look into that, actually? Well, Were you I couldn't curious? find the information. I found some of it. Turbine hall freezing, that should be easy to fix. Put a building around it. Uh, but people talked about this in abstraction. No. Let's just go to each plant. What froze? Okay. Turn me loose in there. Get down to the maintenance shop. I'll find out exactly what froze. All the maintenance guys will tell me. I've got good... I've got good uh, in the shop cred, as long as there's no suits around. <laughs> and then you then you go, okay, it's plant number one. This will be an easy one to fix. Okay, now if I can fix these, can I at least do rolling blackouts? Okay, mathematicians, you have to balance the grid. That's your job. I don't, like, that's a math job. Yeah. Okay, then I'm recognizing you need the different kinds of minds, but you need to speak, talk specifically about what you'd have to do to winterize different stuff and not talk about it in abstractions. What would you say is the most difficult part then about your job when you go on a case and you're advising uh, these places about animal welfare and the machinery and you're involved in everything? What's the most difficult part about that when you're dealing with people, trying to explain things to them? I used to say engineering's easy. People problems are hard. And one of the things that happened during an equipment startup is that most of the managers are screaming and there might be some good swear words uh, in there along with it, is they don't differentiate between a glitch, like a stuck trolley on a rail, cause you a bunch of downtime, and something that's a major design fault where the whole thing may fail. Mm. You know, and they're out there screaming over there about stuck trolleys, but I know we can fix that. And I told them not to use old trolleys on new rail because then they are going to jam. Went through that like at three different places. Nobody would listen. So you got to buy new wheels to go on the new rails. Is it incredibly different dealing with people in America and dealing with with other nations? Not really. It's a lot of the, a lot of the same thing. And you know, equipment's equipment, no matter where you are. But the visual thinker just sees how mechanical things work. And what's happening right now is the people that I worked with that patenting all kinds of mechanical devices. They're all retired and they're not getting replaced. The kids that ought to be replacing those mechanics are playing video games in the basement, probably with an autism diagnosis. I'm going to estimate the skilled people that I worked with that owned metal shops, patented equipment, also um, people that designed equipment. Good 20% were either autistic, dyslexic, or ADHD. And that's probably a conservative estimate. You you have this interesting quotation in the book, actually, you say, there's no doubt in my mind that I would become a video game addict had I been born 30 years 
you know, later. Well, that's, yes, I would have had. Have Why do you think that's the case? What's well, what little video game playing I've gone, I've done, I'm going, oh, I thought this, I'd played this for an hour. I'd played it for four hours. You know, I, I, uh, now Elon Musk got really into video games. He's on the autism spectrum, but he's just old enough to have avoided the most addictive games. And the other thing is that in the early video games, they'd break all the time. And then that blue screen of death would come up with all kinds of interesting code. I call that computers showing their guts. They don't do that anymore. And why is it that, is it because of the pattern recognition that well, comes it, with it, gaming? It's like, they're just so, you know, um, you know, you got to like get the score, you know, get on to the next thing. And, and um, yeah, I wish these kids were getting fabulous video game jobs. They're not. They're not getting fabulous video game jobs. If they were getting fabulous programming jobs or animation jobs, I would have a much different opinion towards it. Now, a lot of them are ending up on a disability check when they ought to be fixing elevators. Do you think there's a way that we could use that, uh, use the gaming approach, what they're interested in, in order to get them into a space where they could be fixing well, I think elevators? The best way to get them into space is get them out there building things. And I'll mm. tell you the way to get the kids off the video games auto mechanics. There's been five or six successes where young autistic adults were gradually introduced to auto mechanics, and they found that that was more interesting than video games, and they gave up the video games because motors were more interesting, real things. Yeah, I mean, I can remember, actually, it's kind of interesting. I'll ask you about this. So the original sort of Legos that just came in blocks and you had to literally build everything from it. And I clearly remember building, you know, planes and buildings and things like that. But now, I was thinking about this just a couple of days ago, but now you have the sets where it essentially tells you what to build. And I thought to myself, there's something that's a little bit lost in that, right? Because you're no longer using the imagination necessarily to be able to see it and build it. Or am I, am I wrong in that, you think? Well... The other thing is, I think we also need kids need to get beyond Legos and, and be building things from scratch with real tools. We've got too many kids today growing up that never used tools. I had a girl in my class who had never used a ruler in her life to measure anything. Really? Never measured anything. Because in my class, they have to do a scale drawing. And I'm finding they're having more problems with that. Is that on society in general do you think society well, in general I think it depends that? a lot on schools now some schools are realizing they need to put a lot of the hands-on classes back in they're realizing that they're needing to do that i'm very concerned about skill loss um, and this is one of the reasons why i did the visual thinking book because we got a serious issue with skill loss i then have found out um, that we don't make poultry processing equipment or pork processing equipment but also, we don't make the state-of-the-art electronic chip-making machine. It's from Holland. And that goes back to the educational system. Can you talk state about State-of-the-art makes the littlest, tiniest, smallest chips. We invented the technology. The Dutch are building it. Can you talk just a little bit more about about? Because I know that's a big topic for you, skill loss. What what are the particular skills that were that are being lost here? The, the what I call the clever engineering department. The people totally understand mechanical things. And when you look at when they take the white metal covers off of that machine, 
There's a lot of mechanical stuff on there. I got on their webpage, they were little tiny screwdrivers and taking stuff apart in that thing. That's the non-mathematical side of engineering, the skilled trades side of engineering. That's the thing that we are losing. You know, people might we be need thinking. People that have those skills like to fix airplanes. Last two mechanics that came on my flights were great. I ran into a head mechanic at the airport and we discussed this issue. You know, we need people that that kind of guy that's kind of odd, be able to visualize the entire hydraulic system in a plane, tire wiring harnessed in a plane. Uh, that's something I actually, when I was younger, would be capable of doing. Now, you don't do it overnight. That took me, like when I first looked at a big beef plant, I go, this is so complicated. How does the manager understand it? But then after I went over there every Tuesday afternoon for six months, I videotaped the entire thing into my head and I could walk through it in my mind. Mm. Now, that didn't happen overnight. Well, people might be thinking in the audience, we talk an awful lot about STEM, though, right? Which includes the engineering and everything. Well, and that's more, they, you see, they're doing the math. And then when I gave did a book signing for visual thinking at Harvard, they had a physics lab in there. And along with the 3D printers, they had crocheting and sewing machines. I'm not kidding, in the physics lab, in their makerspace. But some of your very best visual thinkers aren't going to be in that program because I can't do the abstract math. You see, you need us. Yeah. You need us. Better pay attention to us when we tell you you need watertight doors or, you know, um, Boeing didn't listen to the mechanic in the shop. Now they got the plane fixed now. No, the new Maxis are lovely. I love the super king-sized luggage bins they've got. You can get all the bags on. My my wife's uh, mother's cousin uh, worked for Boeing for 40 years, and he actually uh, he does kind of consulting work to help young people at the University of Washington. And he he loves to talk to us about about young people, about writing, but he absolutely agrees with you that you have to get young people out. You have to get them with their hands dirty, learn things, learn things by touch. Don't be afraid to fail either. Try, try things, try to learn about it, how things work before you even necessarily get into the data and the statistics. Go out and touch a plane. Well, that's just it. And, and you know, we have some of this like in physiology, you know, there's people doing uh, cattle physiology. And I think they forget that there's a cow attached to all that chemistry. <laughs> yes, that's a really good point, right? How many students? No, no, I actually I'm laughing because I can actually picture, uh, you know, a, a student who can pinpoint everything about a cow on a page, on a picture, but then they've never actually touched one, have gone out and well, seen it. Out. Yes, the other day, we have some very tame steers they use for research, so pet steers nutrition research and they love to be petted and i had students of uh, film students were out there and they were stroking these really friendly black angus steers having a great time and i explained to them that these are big animals so we have to make sure they have manners and uh, if they push against you you don't stroke them because that's rewarding pushing which would 1200 pound animal that can be dangerous 
And that's fantastic too, because that's something that you you learn from being out there. You learn what a per- push is, what is just maybe settling in or moving around a little yeah, bit. I can't have big animals pushing on me. And if they're mobbing you, you don't put the feed down when they're mobbing you, because now you're just rewarded mobbing you. Wow. Yeah, you got you got to teach them good plate behavior. Then I put the feed down. <laughs> I never would have thought of it that way as a kind of politeness and thinking about manners, manners in terms of how you interact. Because if you're out there on a small vehicle, one of those four wheelers, and they decide they want to snack off the back, they can knock it over with you ending up being under it. Yeah. And it's very easy to teach cattle manners. Now put the mineral out when you stand and ask for it nicely. That's fantastic. Yeah, that's one. It's very easy to train them. But people accidentally reward behavior that you don't want, budding, pushing. So, I mean, would you would you say that that alone is probably a, worth a course even, right? Just thinking well, about... I was showing the students that, um, that um, you, know, they, you know, where to stroke them so you don't encourage budding. And it's the first time they ever had their hands on cattle. That's it. Must have been a fantastic experience for them. They must, yeah. Doctor. Now Brandon, most cattle aren't that tame. Most cattle, uh, you wouldn't be able to do that. I'd like to ask you what has been the response that you've received from the book so far from people. Well, I've gotten some very very good responses, I, especially from people who are visual thinkers that have had problems in school. And they've really thanked me for doing the book. And they've mentioned problems with algebra and math. And and that gave them a lot of insight into how they think. I did a talk with a design, industrial design group. They responded really well. Because I'm very concerned about some of the object visualizers just getting screened out with all these math requirements. And I, and I think there's some people who think you have to have algebra to think logically. And that's why they push it. And when I did the book signing for visual thinking out in California, we did it in a school and I talked to a principal there who didn't even know that my kind of thinking exists, existed. You know, I can't say I'm surprised because in in some sense, people, like we said, kind of at the very beginning, right? This connection between language and thinking has been around for so long that it, it, it's going to, I suppose, take some time to really get some people to understand that it, it is thinking. There's just different it ways of thinking. thinking. It is thinking. That's the thing. And this gets back to the whole thing of animal consciousness. And it's the people that are really heavy into language that might be questioning whether a dog could actually think. Where to me, it's ridiculous to say dog can't think. The The internet is actually a lot of visual, you know, clicking and pattern recognition. And I don't know if this is, this question is going to make sense as much, but I'm curious about, in some sense, the internet is kind of made or set up in a way to kind of help visual thinkers a little bit. The thing that's interesting about the new artificial intelligence illustration generating program, just read an article on that. uh, And it only uses the picture's, it goes through the whole internet and gobbles up all these pictures, but it only gobbles up the ones that have a caption or accompanying text. 
That's something I just read about it in Wired magazine. That's interesting. This morning, I read that this morning. And so let's say there's a picture of something that was just on somebody's Facebook page with no caption. That picture doesn't go into the database. And then that pic- they were describing how people would use language to tweak the different ways they tell the program to do stuff. And I go, this is really interesting. Only the pictures that have captions, in other words, have language attached to them, does the program feed off of. So in I a lot of ways. That this morning, and it's really made me think. I can go grab the article, show it to you. It's in it. Wired magazine this more I you know got it about a week ago, the engine of wow, and I've marked this up in different places. I wrote in there language is translated into pictures, and the database only uses pictures with captions. That was a single line in this article. Here are some of the pictures it's generated right there, goofy examples. But that was a single line in the article. And I grabbed right onto that. Yeah, that's a big deal, actually. I think it is a big deal. I think it is a big deal that um, it says here, researchers scraped the internet for all images that had adjacent text, such as captions. So what about all the images that are online that don't have adjacent text? So in some ways, it's still kind of privileging the language. It's still privileging language. And 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 I don't know pointed out to keep it. Because this really made me think just this morning at breakfast I read this. Yeah, that would have been a fantastic opportunity to think about how an artificial intelligent, you know, algorithm or or machine could also think visually. And yet it's not really the case then. Well, I think of all the apples that the and Oranges over at the grocery store that don't have captions. I was just in there picking out honey crisps, trying to pick out the nicer ones. None of those apples have captions. Well, actually, wait a minute. They have a label that says honey crisp on it. Okay, they do have a caption. The grapes don't. Okay, there's some things that don't. Are you, if I may ask, are you hopeful about artificial intelligence helping us in learning? Or are you a little skeptical? Well, I can see how it can really help some people with writing. And the other thing I got to thinking, I got to thinking, what if I fed patents into this? All the patents in Europe and in the U.S., they're all captioned. And I decided to invent machinery with it. That was not what I had this morning. Do you think it would generate its own? Well, you have to guide it because the other thing they were saying on here about about this program was that people would tweak the language in different ways to get it to change the artwork. So let's say I want to make a more efficient water pump. And I give it certain specifications for this water pump. I want it to be able to work with very low energy, pump lots of water. I shove that in there and it goes to every patent in the world. What would, you know, that would be interesting. And, but also speaks to, to your idea though. Like, let's say you, you put in all the information and, and it works. And let's say it actually kind of develops this new 
you know, machinery, this new pump that can yeah, do this. You made that up as an example for something simple as I've actually worked with pumps. You're still going to need somebody to go in there, though, and test it and try it hands on. Well, that's just it. And this reminds me of that old movie, Westworld, where they had the robots and the original one with the old burner. There was an old handyman in the fountain fixing it. He says, they need me. The robots can't get water on them. They still need me to fix stuff. And that's why I'm so surprised that there is this kind of discouraging of the trades in general, even though well, we I keep... Think it's a, I think it's a big mistake. And I'm... You need this person to say, hey, electric pumps don't run under water. How about some watertight doors? I mean, you see, when you think about that visually, that's so simple. It's so simple. And yeah. I can see the water coming over the wall, flooding the site, bust out the doors. Basement's full. The only thing I didn't imagine, which uh, was it had fish in it. I'd left that out. Do you think that part of the reason why people are young people aren't necessarily going into the trades is because they feel a kind of a shame? I don't think so. They're not getting exposed to it. You think they just don't know? I think it's not getting exposed to it. It goes back to taking out the classes. They simply are not getting exposed. There's a lot of kids when you get them exposed to maker spaces, they love it. About five or six years ago, I went down to maker space. We had uh, that uh, one of the universities was putting on. You know what the biggest hit was? Cutting up cardboard boxes with hacksaw blades and making stuff out of it. Yeah. That was the biggest hit in there. Yeah, I believe it. Boxes. Washing machine boxes is what they were, actually. Yeah, I believe it. I know for me, it's a, it's a kind of therapy. I did all this work back here behind me. I put all that together, built it, you know, everything from just plywood, my own hands, and honestly, it's it's kids are not being exposed. Hmm. Well, they they just um, and when you start doing activities where kids make stuff, they find out that they really like it. And the video game addicts, the one thing that's actually worked has been car mechanics. That's actually worked. On getting young adults off of video games. And you would think that that would be really, you could get internships possibly, and you could also, um, we talk a lot about inner city students having less res fewer resources, but auto mechanics seems to be a place where we actually could find places where well, young people could do it. When you talk go to developing countries, they got motorbikes all over the place and they get broken all the time and people need to fix them. You know, there's broken lawnmowers all over the place that can be fixed. Mm. You know, maybe there's some of the mechanics out of retirement and set up a garage shop for the neighborhood kids. And then somebody's going to be worried about liability. Yeah, that's the other problem, right? Is we've made it very difficult for young people to be creative, to try things, to break things, to fail in some sense. But we're going to mean we're going to be needing these these skills, and computers aren't going to replace that. Someone will say, "Well, a new electric car is a rolling computer." Well, yes, I would agree. There's less mechanical parts than you know than a gas engine, but there's plenty of mechanical stuff. You got all the sensors that have got to work. Somebody has to fix those things. 
Yeah, absolutely. And there's still a thing for, see, I'm really getting to think about this, only takes the pictures that have words attached to them. One little sentence in here, I saw it. That yeah. really made me think. And I hope my book, Visual Thinking, is going to really make people think about how we solve problems and different ways to solve problems. See, my way is very specific. I, I When I went up to Seattle, I, I, um, I had a chance to meet with people at Expedia, the travel site. Mm-hmm. And we were talking about making a, air travel nicer for people with disabilities. And there was a tendency to talk about this in a very abstract way. That's not how I think. I talked to the blind person. You know what he said? He drove him crazy at the airport. Finding gates. Hmm. So let's make a gate finder app. Denver Airport is nice big numbers. I think a phone could be trained to just read those and tell it to them. Gate finder app. But you see, that's something that I just made it up. I know it could be done, but it's something specific. Yeah. You see, that that's the way my mind thinks. Let's figure out some specific things we could do that would be fairly easy to do. Yeah. Take on a problem, identify the problem, and, and fix it. And that could be done in the airport. Wouldn't have to spend a lot of money. There might be some airports where the gate numbers, I think, will have to be enlarged. So yeah. the app doesn't mix advertising up with gate numbers. You see, I'm yeah. already seeing that that could be a problem. Because I was coming down the moving sidewalk, and <clears throat> if I had my phone and it's reading gate numbers, there's a banner up there for the restaurant. Mm-hmm. I don't want it pulling numbers off of that. Yeah. And with given the fact that young people today are are just starved for meaningful engagement with things, being able to go in, identify a problem, and solve it is would would be absolutely fantastic for them, even for their mental health as well. Well, we found that when I did a book signing for Calling All Minds, and we provided a whole pile of printer paper, the kids had a great time making paper airplanes that they had never made before. One of the another project I have in there is a paper snowflake. <laughs> We've got kids that have grown up, they've never used scissors. And then when they want to be doctors when they grow up, they have a hard time sewing up cuts because I discussed that in my visual thinking book. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's amazing. Yeah, Dr. Grandin, you've been incredibly generous with your time. I, I like to end my conversations always, if I can, on positive notes. So let me ask you this question. What makes you hopeful? about the future of how we look at, at visual thinkers and thinking in general? Well, we need the, I tell, I do a lot of talks for corporations because they want to be inclusive. And I said, first thing we have to, you have to know is that different kinds of thinking exist. That's the single most important thing you've got to know. Different kinds of thinking exist. And then you can look at how we can use these skills in complementary ways. Because let's take something like a startup company. You have the creative people get the startup going, but then it gets to be a certain size. You got to hire a verbal thinker just to keep the business running. My grandfather was the co-inventor of the autopilot for airplanes. MIT trained engineer, worked with an autistic guy who came up with a goofy new idea, which worked, but it was stolen. And they needed a lawyer. Yeah, we need all the different kinds of thinkers. 
Yeah. I, I think that's perfectly said. Absolutely. Dr. Grandin, thank you so much for, for sharing your knowledge, your, your book, and, and this wonderful body of work that you have. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for having me on your show. And I'll just do one little last plug. Well, get my book. I think it's going to really make you think. I agree. Absolutely. Thank you. All right. Thank you very, very much. Last semester, I had a student who drew a picture of me while we were going over some notes in class. He then showed it to me after class was finished. I was astonished. It was absolutely beautiful. I told the student that I thought it was truly amazing and that I can barely draw a circle on a page. When he tried to tell me that it wasn't a big deal, I said to him, you don't get it. These shadows, these lines that you put in here, the parts of this that make it a work of art, I can't see them in my head. I literally can't draw this. He looked at me in astonishment. He said he never really thought about it that way before. We don't all think the same way. We have different skills, different ways of viewing the world around us, and that is our strength. That is what it means to be human. If we want to continue to thrive as a species, we need to remember this and stop trying to make everyone think the same way, to believe that there is one right way to think. At best, it's wrong. At worst, it hinders our ability to progress in science and technology, and it limits the creativity that so often places us in awe through a beautiful painting or a great piece of music. The world needs variety in thinking, but we can't just say it, we have to show it. Until next time, try to keep one foot firmly planted on neutral ground, and have a great day.